Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. I have a thousand things that I want to tell you about in this episode. Lately, I've been in a deeper and deeper dive on eco-psychology, as usual. And as I was reading uh, a really important text in that area, uh, there is a conversation around the over-psychologizing of our culture, how we throw around labels and diagnosis as, as if it's not a thing, like just a casual conversation, like, she's bipolar too, he's a narcissist, etc., etc. And, you know, without really a clinical understanding or definition of that for most of us. We just notice these patterns in humans that are difficult and confusing and somehow missing the presence, attunement, connection, empathy that we long for. And so I started giving some thought to that. And of course, um, because this is a science and research-based show, and it's not just personal narrative and poetry, no offense to that, I, I wanted to know more. So I started looking at the impact that a worldview that says you're an isolated individual might be having on this sort of outbreak of narcissism, this perception that people are, are in it for themselves. And are those things correlated? Could it possibly be that predictable narcissism is a thing that you could very well expect that the outcome of a worldview that says, from Descartes on, I think, therefore I am, all the way through Taylorism and Ford's assembly line, this widgetization of what should be subjects in the world into objects, including you as a person, uh, where all the pressure is on you to make your life, to stand on your own two feet, to perform, to get or achieve all of the things that society tells you are important to achieve. What if that very pressurized worldview is in fact the reason we're having this spate of very self-absorbed and unempathetic uh, people in the world? So I wanted to start with looking at narcissism, then moving into alternative worldviews that make you more of a process than an object. What to do if you're the one who's suspecting that you might have narcissistic tendencies, how to begin to unwind those, how to develop empathy. And we'll go from there. We'll see what unfolds. You know, I've been developing this community on the Big Island of Hawaii six years now, which is also a testimony to the fungibility of time space because I can't believe it's been six years. And it's been through a couple of iterations. Uh, a few years ago, we in in the beginning of COVID, we decided to move from a retreat center atmosphere into a more residential atmosphere where people would come for a year or two years and they would live. So the minimum stay was uh, three months and we recruited our first cohort of, of people. And they were quite impressive as, as individuals. They had a lot of skills in the healing arts, very educated, 
uh, brought a lot of energy, enthusiasm, beauty. They were kind of like sexy, fun, musical. So we had very high hopes. It might as well have been a reality show because the lodging that they were in uh, had four bedrooms, two bathrooms, and a shared lanai space, a shared outdoor kitchen, and access to the full uh, use of the property, which was gardens and ponds and, and event spaces. And they were really intent on coming into coherence together, like staying attuned to each other's emotions, getting to know each other holistically, getting to know each other's gifts and challenges. And within eight weeks of the start of the community, you could already see that there were going to be personality conflicts, particularly in the areas of authority, like who was in charge. And this started right away uh, begging the question of, is there hierarchy? Like hierarchy is so embedded in us. And I know we've discussed this before, the difference between a dominance hierarchy, authority over, based on position, and a competence hierarchy where you deeply respect someone for their skill set, their mastery, and their knowledge. And in a competence hierarchy or in a competence web, let's say, not even a hierarchy, we're always looking for what gifts people have and how we can magnify them and how everyone um, is is able to find a place to land, to play their role, to express their gifts. And how you make room for everyone to do that uh, and, and that everyone is a unique emanation of creation and everyone has value. And in a dominance hierarchy, you take the opposite position. It's that some people have more value than others. Some are more advanced and you should just do what I say you're going to do. Follow my process. It's not a very collaborative model of living. And we saw the beginnings of dominance hierarchy emerging even then, but it felt like everyone was intentionally curious about, you know, how to do it differently. So we didn't really take action. Over the course of the next couple of years, as the community reformed and some people left and some people came in, it really became obvious that one of the core skills of living well in a community of others is sort of a core humility. You know, in an environment where there are a lot of charismatic people, it's especially important for those people to drop into a feeling of being nested and leaning in to others and not always wanting to be at the center of attention. That's what a healthy family does. Unhealthy families often put the parents' needs first, where the children are an extension of their parents' identity. In other ways of unhealthy family formation, they put the needs of the children first, where the children um, get all of the attention, uh, which is also very difficult for the child, by the way, a lot, lot of pressure on the child in that circumstance. But in a healthy family, there is mutuality. Everyone's needs matter. One of the things that has happened on this most recent time on the land is we were so lucky to have a beautiful woman, um, an educator, who was a student of Ray Castellini, a pioneer in observing how healthy family systems operated. And he came up with eight principles that are common in healthy family systems that if you did not grow up in a mutually respectful family environment, you can mimic in your own environment. And 
this woman, Kyle, um, presented that to our community in a multi-hour workshop. So I'm just going to give you a tiny little recap so that you can check in with yourself as to whether your family of origin or possibly even the family you're operating now or your work group, whether these principles are in place in your work group, your community, your team, whatever. So the first principle that she talked about was the principle of welcome, that your core message is that you child, you mom, you dad, you coworker, you colleague, you are welcome here, that all of your parts are welcome. Everything, the messy parts, etc., that your presence itself is welcome here, and that that's the tone. Uh, the next principle that she talked about was the principle of mutual support and cooperation, that in an environment that's healthy, that everyone's needs matter, your needs are important, and that you are trying to figure out ways together to get everyone's needs met. So as an example, one of the people in the community said, you know, I really want a chance and a place to play music, and I'm um, having difficulty finding that with other people's needs for silence, but he had not prior identified that need. And so when he said it out loud, suddenly we were able to all brainstorm and find ways where his um, desire to play music was not only met at a basic level, but really amplified, and, and we could find a place for him to play. I could give many more examples, but it would take a very long time, so I'm going to keep going on this. Another principle was the principle of, of choice, that everyone at all times in a family system that's healthy has the right to say they will or won't participate, that they're in choice with whatever's going on. Uh, and because you're in mutual support and cooperation, people usually will go with the choice to be in the cooperative mode unless it really violates another principle, which is the principle of self-care. So we stayed on the self-care conversation for quite a while, which was interesting to me because um, self-care as a principle seems obvious, like you take care of your elimination, your hydration, your food, whatever, and I will count on you to take care of that Instead of trying to monitor, guess, uh, track what's going on with everybody, or in any other way, remove myself from my own center, that if I know you're taking care of yourself, I can recover any energy that might be going into tracking the room and know that you're going to ask for what you need. And that in a healthy family system, people not only are able to track their own needs, ask for what they need. They expect that when they ask for that, it's going to be responded to and it's going to be met. So that's the principle of self-care. And then correlating to that is the principle of the pause. That at any moment in a family system or in a harmonic group, that someone needs a moment to integrate in real time something that's just happened, they can say, I need a pause and that can pause you on a moment that's really wonderful and amazing and you just really want to feel. It can pause you in a moment when you're starting to get triggered and you're getting upregulated. It can pause you in a moment where your alarm bells are going off and you want to feel into what's coming up for you. But the point is that if you are able to stop yourself in the, co- in the course of something like this and, and create a moment of pause feeling you integrate in real time and you don't have to go away from that interaction and integrate later on your own. You're actually met and welcome um, 
to slow down, bring your awareness into the group and integrate it in real time. The next principle, and we're, we're getting to some very targeted ones, is the principle of brief and frequent eye contact. Now, this might seem very tactical compared to some of the others, but in this way, this is how children in general feel that things are safe. You're co-regulating each other by quick glances at mom and dad's eyes. Dad and mom glance at the child. They glance at each other. And that when people are making short and frequent eye contact, that they can co-regulate and self-regulate. And also you're keeping sort of a pulse on the emotional tone of the room. This is a really big deal in a phone-addicted society, that people constantly looking down at their phone, the neuroscientific impact of that, the the feeling impact of that is that you don't feel attended to, attuned to, felt, or seen. And so we really need to become more mindful when we're in groups or families about leaving that device in a drawer, in a pocket. Um, Or if you're going to pick it up when you're in space with someone else, even saying, I'm going to look at my phone now, I have to check something so that it doesn't feel like an attention departure or an abrupt departure uh, from presence with the people you love. A seventh principle is the principle of touch and contact, leaning into one another, petting, holding, hugging, showing basic physical affection. And then the last one is, and this is kind of a variation on respect, the principle of confidentiality, which says that I respect you enough not to tell your story not to share your narratives, not to share your images without your express permission. That's especially important for parents towards children because children's stories are often shared uh, by their parents without permission. So your child's not an object. Anyway, so we asked the community, and I'm going to send you a link to this presentation if you're interested, um, or at least to the principles of this presentation. So we asked the community if they would be willing to dwell in the experiment for the next 30 days of living out those principles. Welcome, mutual support and cooperation, uh, choice, pause, self-care, frequent eye contact, contact and touch, and confidentiality. And they said yes. And within a very short period of time. Wow. Uh, Impact was immediately felt. You saw people beginning to amplify each other's gifts, speak more clearly about their comings and goings, be more attuned to how their sudden comings and goings impacted others. Very powerful. So then another thing that we did was we, um, our friend Michelle, or aka Infinity, who's living here, suggested that we add to our team our attunement practices as a group, secret angels, which is a little bit like secret Santas, and that you would pull a name from a hat, and then sometime over the course of the week, you would do a gesture for that person that felt very loving, uh, that was based on things that they'd already articulated they wanted. So kind of a pay it forward, gift it forward feeling. And this dropped the whole group into a playful sense of, wow, how do I delight another person. And this got me thinking about one of my most favorite things to do in the whole wide world, and that is to play the loving game. And playing the loving game has been on my mind and heart a lot lately, not just in the community and in my family, but in my relationship. And when I'm partnered, playing the loving game is my 100% favorite thing to do. And in fact, I I thought if I ever was to write a personal ad, 
it would probably be the header, like fun, curious, and dependable playmate in the loving game or something along those lines. But the loving game does not have to be considered only in the context of primary relationship. Uh, it is a really big way to enrich your life all the time. If, if we're playing the loving game together, things happen like, here are a few that happened this week for me. I arrived back to my room yesterday to find three little mason jars stuffed with flowers from the garden. And I thought, wow, someone, and at that point I didn't know who it was, had taken the time to do that for me. That was so incredibly sweet. Uh, And then today, a housemate brought shot glasses of warm honeyed cacao and matcha to us as we sat on the porch in the morning sunrise, and we toasted the new day together. And another example would be a friend recently arranging a group date for six of us to go hear Zydeco and dance together, like basically taking the time to make a collective joy experience for us. So playing the loving game is like the juice of life. I don't think there's anything better. You have somewhere for your affection and childlike spirit to land, making surprises, moments of delight for yourself and others and playing it like it's the main show of life. Left behind notes, plentiful hugs, kind words, massage exchanges, sweaty dancing, jumping in the ocean, the kitchen cha-cha cooking together, jokes, ceremonies, creating, you know, all of the good stuff. And yes, also, you know, working and crying and grieving when the time is right for that. Making note of all the important times of life, transition ceremonies, you name it. So for me, life is really, really sweet when you play this game. And when you wake up, you might think, what kind of cool stuff can I do with my person or for my person? What kind of small gift or nice thing can happen today? Or do I want to make a plan for an important date with them and prioritize them and just keep them top of mind? And in this way, because the other person is also joyfully doing the same thing, or your other friends are, or your community group, that this becomes kind of a culture, you enter into this sweet spiral, this mutual spiral dance of acknowledgement and seeing and playing. This has evolved for me over a long time, like where working used to be the core activity, and then long, long time after that came the playing. But now it goes a little bit the other way, Like the order of my life is connection to spirit and earth, like experiencing myself as a conduit between both my own health and body, which no one else can care for, that self-care thing that was in Castellini's principles, and then to primary relationship. Like my guy is my then focus, like how do we do the dance? And then after that, my family and my community, my relationships, all life is relationships And you'll be amazed that with that resourced, connected web, all the beautiful things that we invent, create, invest in, birth, and sustain come very, very naturally. But this desire, that's kind of going back to the narcissism thing, this desire to connect um, has to come from someplace in you that knows that you're not in it alone, that you don't have to do it alone. I could get into all the statistics on American loneliness or, or how upregulated so many of us have been our whole lives, just trying to paddle madly beneath the surface and what it feels like to drop down into deep belonging and the connection between losing this obsessive focus on the self 
coming down into playing the loving game, learning once again how to live in family and how to live in community in a way that is deeply respectful, and then to unwind the learned and predictable narcissism of our times, which is frankly exhausting, both to witness, to feel, and to experience. I think I'll take a moment here and back up and do a little inquiry again on the toxic individualism idea and narcissism. So toxic individualism is a term that's more broadly related to the culture, where individuals prioritize their own interests and success over the collective good out of some misguided sense that you can have individual success in the long run or that the human human race can if it doesn't take into account the collective good. And uh, narcissism, however, uh, is a personality disorder that has excessive self-importance, lacks empathy, requires the need for admiration, attention, validation, has entitlement related to it, and it often results in disregarding the needs and feelings of others. Both toxic individualism and narcissism have an excessive focus on the self and disregard for others. They both do, and they can both lead to selfish and destructive behaviors. But what I think is interesting is that the toxic individualism idea delocates narcissism from the individual. And again, in the sort of psychological lens where you as the individual are the problem, narcissism as an individual issue is a, I feel, a false label. It really is something that is arising out of the culture and out of family systems. I mentioned before that this uh, Cartesian concepts like emphasis on individual autonomy and self-reliance have contributed to this broader toxic individualism, this cultural context that values self-centeredness and individualism over cooperation or concern for others. It's, It's not like it's a direct relationship, but think about this. There is absolutely nothing that you have created in your life or that I've created in my life that hasn't stood on the shoulders of everybody who's come before me in whether it's in material science, philosophy, ideas, laws, roads, mechanical engineering, like I am an iteration in a process of life. And that is the same with my DNA, my epigene, literally all of the genetic evolution that has preceded me to make me a more intelligent, productive, wise body, mind, heart system. All of that I rest upon. I'm not a thing. I'm not a single object. I am a process in the mind of creation, and I'm utterly dependent on the rest of creation for my life. So all I can hope for is to offer something new, a new lens, a contribution to the future evolution of the culture or the physical embodiment of humanity. So it's also, you know, the Cartesian worldview that says we are separate is also at the root of what is wrong with our relationship to the earth. So Descartes comes out and imagine the time that this is arising in when, you know, the individual doesn't really have a a large, a, a voice that, you know, it's the time of kings and nobles and things like that in many cultures. We're not really talking about land-based, earth-based, tribal cultures, because those were sort of more naturally oriented to the way humans are built, how we're built to live. Um, but in in the context of a Western culture, 
there was a need to break free and put more value on the individual, but the pendulum swung a little bit far. It swung to the point where we got the American cowboy rugged individualist look uh, where you have all of your own skills and resources to survive in a hostile environment. Uh, you have the lone superhero story where you have this powerful, self-sufficient figure who saves the world single-handedly, the plot of most Hollywood movies. Sorry, men, that you had that handed to you, uh, individualism, self-reliance, and independence to the point of it being poisonous. So these qualities are admirable in a lot of contexts. Like they help me own my life. I do what I can do, but I also know when to lean into the field to contribute and to ask for help. But when um, when it gets a little bit sick, these Cartesian worldviews, cowboy culture, and superheroes uh, contribute to a cultural context that values self-centeredness, that values and and amplifies narcissistic tendencies. You know, and, and frankly, all of the research says that people who put a lot of attention on themselves are just not happy. That the need for constant validation, the need for attention, self-promotion, bragging, boasting, all that validation gain is 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 a recipe for feeling anxious and insecure. And the narcissist becomes dependent on the need... Uh, for the approval of others to feel good about themselves. And, and, and they also struggle to form one of the most predictable uh, happiness indicators for being human, which is long, deep, meaningful connections with others. Because instead of feeling the, the, the deep sweetness of relational connection, of playing the loving game for its own good, they, they tend to view people as objects to be used for their own benefit. And that's very isolating and very lonely. So to the extent that self-centered activity, narcissism, can create temporary feelings of pleasure or satisfaction, it doesn't create happiness. And there is evidence to suggest that it's on the rise. And, you know, you look at the individualism question through the perspective of social media, where you're constantly looking at your own reflection, uh, exacerbates the existing tendencies of narcissism and might even contribute to the development of narcissistic traits in others. It definitely provides the platform for people with that tendency to already get attention seeking and validation. It uh, allows you to curate and share and idealize your life that gets you away from the reality of life. The reality is that we have experienced a lot of things in our life that are, uh, even on the daily, not so pretty to look at. Uh, so, you know, the social social media curation. In general, this, this creates a culture where others feel pressure to be that ideal, to live up to that, this heightened focus on appearance and status and materiality. So we know that there are things in the culture that are amplifying it. So I I want to break it down a little bit more because it's not all the same and it doesn't always manifest in the same way. So what are the kinds of narcissism? Uh, there's the one that we're most familiar with is the grandiose narcissism, where it's like this exaggerated sense of self-importance, like I mentioned before, lack of empathy for others, self-promotion, bragging, boasting, all of that. Great. Avi, okay, we got that. But there are other kinds. Vulnerable narcissists is a really tricky one. It's like a victimy self-centeredness uh, that has like uh, at its core a feeling of inadequacy and insecurity. It also has the need for constant reassurance and attention from others. It's like a little bit of the baby voice 
I get attention by being small. I call out the protector in others. And usually individuals with this are are hypersensitive to criticism. They may struggle with self-esteem issues in general, but it is still an over-focus on the self and a way to manipulate and and have attention brought to you, um, even though it's in a negative way. You might be familiar with the term malignant narcissism, which is a particularly severe form of narcissism that has the grandiosity, but also antisocial behavior and sadism or the desire to hurt others from the Marquis de Sade. Individuals with this, with malignant narcissism, may be manipulative, exploitive, and may cause harm to others in order to derive their own pleasure. It's a whole step beyond grandiosity. And a couple that aren't usually discussed, um, communal narcissism is when it's not you as an individual looking into the pond of narcissus. It's when you have this community or group identity rather than the individual identity um, that is is really focused on your group being better than others and your group not having empathy for other groups, whether it's religious or political or racial or in some way disconnected from your empathic connection with others. It's a little bit, you know, communal narcissism seem to be a little oxymoronic. Yeah, they seem to be a little oxymoronic because narcissism is so often treated as an individual issue. But it, but I guess you could create a cohort viewpoint that is also very self-focused. And then the last one to note is covert narcissism, a more subtle form of self-promotion, a lot of passive aggressive behaviors, again, with the victim mentality, like entitlement to special treatment, but they might not be as outwardly self-aggrandizing as those with a grandiose narcissism. God complexes and stuff like that. So at the individual level, maybe we start tracking. When don't I have empathy? When am I self-aggrandizing? What is that doing in my life? Is it helping to amplify or improve my relationships? Or is it creating difficulty in my relationships? And when we touch that in ourselves, we might begin to do some reweaving of ourselves into the web of life by really becoming uh, self-reflective, accepting criticism, admitting to our own flaws or growth edges, getting feedback from people, letting, letting people give us feedback when they can feel us feeling them, like uh, uh, do they feel that we're tuned in, that they have our attention. We can work with a therapist to do some of these things, to learn how to unwind childhood traumas, to improve our self-esteem, to get tools and strategies for developing empathy or regulating our emotions. Same with mindfulness. So there are ways that if you are guessing that you might be falling into this trap because you're a little bit lonely and needing a lot of feedback and still don't have the kind of deep relationships you want, there are ways to begin to do that. Now, I feel that because the narcissism concept has been labeled as an individual problem, but it is really more a worldview problem that you can unweave uh, this narrative of the isolated individual by by connecting yourself back into the web of life. And you can do that by being in nature and really noticing like how you're connected, whether it's hiking or gardening or taking a walk. You really begin to see how the entire world is the interdependent cooperation of all creatures and all beings. And it's never one dominant creature that's doing it. There's no one species that stands out and certainly no single animal 
within one species or single tree within a grove that is doing it. So nature is the perfect teacher for how it takes everything in an ecosystem to function. And that's what you are, what I am. And the second way to reweave your single isolated meat body self into the web of life is to really go out and serve somebody, whether it's volunteering for a cause or playing the loving game, like I talked about earlier, or making a meal and feeding people. Um, You get this sense of, of how we are woven together and get a better sense of connection to the world around us. Another one is really learning how to be a friend learning how to build relationships and connections that are not transactional. We're really listening to people's stories and hearing what they want and then go back to the Castellini principles and think about how I can welcome this person and how I can build a web of mutuality and cooperation with them. And then finally, I would say another practice is just to really drop into gratefulness, man. You know, every single day in the body, truly a gift and There are a lot of ways that you can do that. We don't have to do a whole little mini course on gratitude here, but cultivating gratitude for living, for being part of the life force that wants itself and wants itself as you. You were wanted by creation. Your soul wanted to come in. Your soul wanted this body. Creation wants you. Life wants you. Your perspective matters because you exist. You matter because you exist. There's nothing else to prove So I'm going to go now and talk a little bit about, so you're starting to work on these um, these pieces of reawakening the solo meat body self into the web of life. And then we're going to talk about, back to the community question, what have we learned about living well in community? The number one thing, okay, maybe aside from keeping the kitchen clean and navigating noise, the number one thing is empathy. And that was kind of meant as a joke, because if you have empathy, you will begin to navigate with your friends, your colleagues, your housemates, those concerns that they have. So empathy, or the ability to understand and share the feelings of others is critical to building relationships, period. And in a community, it's triple, quadruple important. And it involves taking the time to slow down, to listen to others, and to really feel and understand things from their perspective. There's also learning how to communicate, doing nonviolent communication, doing attunement practices, all of that stuff, respecting others, very essential to have kindness and dignity, valuing all of their opinions, how to cooperate, how to have patience, how to be responsible for your own actions and accountable to others, be reliable, keep commitments. I mean, we cultivate those those qualities and it makes it a lot easier. But I, I do think that, you know, you have this these sort of platitudes like be more empathic and we don't always know how to develop that empathy. So there are exercises for people who want to develop more empathy. One is to practice perspective taking like any given situation, actively try to put yourself in other shoes and imagine how they might be feeling in a given situation. Or when you might have been in those shoes, can you even reflect it back on your own experience so that you can get a greater sense of compassion and understanding for them? Another way is to actively seek out diverse perspectives. Whenever you're certain about something, to really engage with people from different backgrounds and experiences and and look for media and resources that can expose you to different perspectives. And that can really help broaden the understanding of the world. 
Uh, we talked about engaging in acts of kindness, like volunteering or helping others. That can foster a sense of empathy because you're really in the face of people's needs. And then practicing active listening. So if you're not empathic at the moment, there might be a bubble around you that has made it difficult for you to receive others in your past. So you trust that. Wow, it's been difficult for me to feel others. I have not, I have not as a young child or a young person, really um, learned how to do that. It's been much more beneficial for me to bubble myself up and protect from feedback, from the feelings of others. Criticism comes with feedback maybe, or unneeded um, information, it's overwhelming for me. So if you lived with and grew up with a narcissist who was often objectifying you or criticizing you and you developed uh, a response mechanism that created a seal around you and you can't take others in, then we slow, 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 slow down until we learn how to feel. Okay, so there's a lot of self-helpy information in there. So let's back it up to uh, a much more metaphysical idea. Who are you anyway? Last week, someone showed me that amazing photograph that's taken by the Deep Space Telescope of the Milky Way, where it shows the connections of the planets and the solar system and the patterning in there. And then an image of the known universe with all of the galaxies in the universe. And then an image of the human brain and its electrons and its hotspots and its conductivity. And if those images do not look exactly the same, who are you? Are you an electrical conduit in the brain of a superorganism? Are you caught between the dimensions of the quantum biology and deep space? Are you an object or are you a process in the mind of creation? If, if you do any of those deeper meditation practices where every time you find yourself having a thought and you ask, who am I? Who is having this thought? And your mind goes blank. It's a super interesting pointer to the fact that you are not your mind. The deeper you go into science, the more the mystery of who you are um, presents itself. And once you're in that mystery, man, it is nothing but wonder and humility. And humility in the sense of bowing down and kissing the ground and saying, I don't know what I did to deserve to be here, but it's pretty amazing and what is going on and just being in that learning. So on another note on Cosmos, Cosmos, I was in our garden, and I think that this might be the last story I'll tell on this subject of humility. I was sitting in the garden, and we've had a hell of a time getting this garden to function. It's out in the sunshine, the soil's shallow, you know, there was a desire to have it be a botanical garden space, and the first attempts at making the garden had it filled with charismatic plants, very showy, uh, spectacular looking things. And um, they just didn't make it. They couldn't make it in the heat. Uh, they couldn't make it without a lot of attention. And um, they died off. And we did a couple of rounds of attempting first this showy kind of plant, then this kind of customy hibiscus hybrids and this and that. And finally, we gave up. And what ended up getting planted in that garden were cosmos and impatience. And if you don't, um, and asters, uh, you know, very hardy, shallow rooted flowers. And I was sitting out there in the sunshine, sunrise coming up, and it was slanting in sideways. And uh, the sunlight was catching the 
top of this entire garden full of cosmos with individually are very very delicate and um, lovely in their own way, but not very showy and definitely not charismatic. And it was a glow and absolutely stunning pinks and whites and magentas and yellows and radiating. And together in this humble arrangement of many people fully expressing themselves in a soil where no one was taking more than their fair share, there was tremendous beauty. And I couldn't help but drawing the conclusion that that is the same way in a family or in a community or on a planet where when we're all nested and sharing the resources together and understanding how the ecosystem plays, that we're all much better off. At some point, we're all going to have to come to terms with our mortality, our fragility, and our place in the wider universe. We're going to have to come to terms with our imperfections, not in a hair shirt, self-flagellating way, our challenges, the things that we have known. I personally, I have known poverty, humiliation, shame. I have known all kinds of things that I wish I could hide from sometimes. But you know what? They've made me infinitely richer. I have been weak. I have told lies. But I've also been strong and resilient and told the most transparent truths. We contain it all. And this life is a journey of taking one step every day to get a little bit more open, more settled in ourselves, more aware that we are settled in turn in the entire, entire fabric of this beautiful material reality. In the tradition that I'm very steeped in, the yoga traditions, uh, there is a mantra called the Gayatri Mantra, which is actually a mantra for the sun, uh, where you, you are actually the sun. You're the product of the radiation of the sun and how it feeds the plants and how they feed you and how they feed the other animals. And you are an electrical being conducting prana and energy and chi. And in the first stanza of this of this mantra, it goes, Om Bur Swaha. And it is an acknowledgement of Om, the universal resonating frequency of all of creation, everything seen, everything unseen. Bur, which is this material plane, this earth, this body, also holy, buva, the atmosphere and the space around us. And, and, you, and in, in this invocation, you're saying everything in the entire of reality, this very body and all the atmospheric things that surround it, they are all part of the wholeness and the holiness. And what if we walked every day in acknowledgement of that. So with that, I think we have covered a lot. The first antidote to narcissism is to stop thinking about it as an individual uh, issue, to start thinking about it as a cultural a construct that has emerged from a worldview of separation. And the second one is to know that even if it's not your fault, it's your responsibility to begin unwinding these unhelpful and very personally unsatisfying narcissistic tendencies in the world. 
by inviting those people into an equal nested trusting relationship. And if we have those tendencies by inviting ourselves into more empathy and gratitude. It's not only our own happiness and a healthy culture that depends on it. It's a restored and right relationship to the rest of the ecosystems that we live within. Let us shut down the overemphasis on the individual and the subjective and re-weave our weeness, the third body that comes between individuals and the beautiful web of life connection that we're all a part of. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every week we try to talk a little bit about something that will open us up into more love, more liberation, and uh, more freedom, more happiness. So I hope that there were some ideas in today's show. If you'd like to talk with me, I'm at the.rose.woman on Instagram. You can also find the community that I've been talking about, Sundari on Hawaii. Sundari means beauty, S-U-N-D-A-R-I, also on Instagram. And of course, my company that is delivering intimate wellness products and body care products and ingestibles to help us optimize life in Boer and our material plane bodies at rosewoman.com. Come and support the company. Uh, The company supports this work of getting the message of your own perfection and participation in the natural life that you've been given as the core joy of existence and requiring nothing more helps me get that message out into the world. All right, be well, be blessed. Remember who you really are.